Can you say, welcome to CXMH? No, 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 no. Here, can you do it? Can you say, welcome to CXMH? <laughs> Pretty close. <laughs> You're listening to the CXMH Podcast. CXMH is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health. Hey, welcome back to the show. My name is Robert Vore, and I'm one of your hosts, and I am joined this week, as always, by my co-host, Dr. Holly, quote, the boss, quote, Oxhandler. <laughs> Holly, how are you doing this week? <laughs> Oh, Robert, I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Feeling bossy right now. <laughs> You're good. I'm glad. I'm glad. That's awesome. Yeah. 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 I'm doing good. It just, you know, we're middle of November and wrapping up the semester. And yeah. Yeah. What What have y'all been up to? It's much the same. I don't. I feel like I'm, <laughs> we don't have like super exciting things each week necessarily, but going along, seeing clients. Uh, I had uh, actually, I did. I did a suicide prevention training this week that was different than all the ones that I've done before. Mm, uh, how in was the it sense that, yeah. uh, so I think all of the ones I've done before has been, you know, an organization saying, "Hey, will you train our staff or our our youth?" group leaders or whatever it is like hey will you come do it so I kind of have like a good sense walking in like where everyone's coming from what mm-hmm. what it is that they're kind of looking for you know practical tool wise is it you know I'm a, I'm a youth volunteer I'm a church staff member or whatever it is um, mm-hmm. but I I tried something different and I, I kind of took a, a gamble and I thought I'm just going to have one that like is open and you can register for it right and so uh, we've posted about it a couple times on CXMH uh-huh. things uh, and just whoever wants to sign up can come and, and register and we'll kind of see what happens with that and it actually went really well it was really cool like the dynamic because at the beginning mm-hmm. I said you know hey normally here's what I do but I would love to get kind of a sense of, of who all is in the room and why you're here and, and what it is you're looking for. And so I think that dynamic was really cool because especially, and we talked last week about kind of the Q and a sessions at the end of these yeah, things, but that's right. yeah. uh, it was interesting to see them interact. Obviously I got questions from like different areas, right? Cause there was some trained mental health professionals in the room. There was people that worked in various types of ministries. There was uh, people who were just interested, uh, things like that. And so it was, it was fascinating to watch not only the different questions that they had, but then also like after I would kind of respond to a question, somebody would say like, hey, can I follow up too? And they would like answer mm-hmm. the other person's question with kind of what they thought. That's awesome. From a whole different perspective, you know, because they, maybe they were coming from a mental health perspective or a ministry perspective and things. Um, and so it was actually really fun to kind of watch it be horizontally interactive as well. Uh, oh, that's as, like, so good. Yeah. So it was, it was really fun. That's awesome. Yeah, that's I mean, that's a that is a skill, I think, too, for a presenter to be able to create and hold that space for your audience to be able to interact so comfortably with one another. So kudos to you for being able to do that. That's that's wonderful. That's really good. Yeah, I don't know if uh, I'll take it, but I don't don't know if I particularly like fostered that environment necessarily. But I think doing I always kind of like them in smaller groups for specifically the the suicide prevention trainings i think for mm-hmm. that reason because it feels much more like 
kind of a, a conversational thing as opposed to, you know, I've, I think the largest I ever did was, you know, almost a, a hundred people. And I, it just, it, it has a very different vibe to it. Mm. Very different. Uh, you know, it's easier to kind of uh, go back and forth if there's 15 people in a room than if, you know, there's, there's 75, a hundred people in a room. Um, and so mm-hmm. um, I think I like, I like that kind of setting. So that's awesome. That's yeah. really good. Really fun. Man, that is, uh, I'm so, that's awesome. I'm really proud of you. That's awesome. So do you have any more speaking events like for the, through the rest of this year? Are you, are you done or do you have like, what's coming up for you? Yeah. So I technically no, I don't have anything on the calendar. I actually am going back and forth with a couple people right now in terms of scheduling some things. Uh, mm-hmm. There's one other church that I might do a suicide prevention training at that uh, we're tr- working on some timing of things, seeing if it works in December. And then mm-hmm. uh, a local youth pastor, actually a couple hours ago, we were exchanging emails about doing kind of just a general, you know, all the volunteers and parents could be invited to a kind of a lunch and learn type thing mm-hmm. in, in, I think, the first week of December. So uh, nothing confirmed as of right now but uh, a couple things potentially in the works for december but i mean december there's so much uh even starting like you know this week when this comes out is thanksgiving week and then i know yeah so probably probably better not to slam pack a couple weeks there full of of obligations and things like that yes yes well that's kind of what i was thinking with all that you know coming up with holidays and such that you know yeah that's good yeah man well, I know you. we're, so we, yeah. I, I, I'm going to lovingly call you out. Uh, I, oh, asked, no. <laughs> I asked how you were doing. You said, oh, it's good. It's part of the semester, right? Uh, I don't know why I used a, a fake Holly voice, but when we got on at first, you, you, you were much more emphatic about it being close to the end of the school year, the That's semester. That's true. That's true. Y'all, I am. Oh, I'm so excited. It's so we actually, we just wrapped up. Uh, what was it? Monday was my last day of class. So when this episode comes out one week ago um, was my last day of class. I teach PhD students and they ended their or we ended the semester a little bit early because they have their comprehensive exam coming up, which is a big, big checkpoint, you know, in the PhD program that all of our students kind of have to, you know, to pass before they move forward in the program. And so we were end the semester a little bit early. So that was I mean, it, oh, it feels so good. It feels so good to be <laughs> like wrapping things up. And I have some grading to do, um, but I don't, I mean, at this point, I don't have any more presentations before the end of the year. So that feels good. I mean, CSWE, which we talked about last week, you know, that was my last big presentation. I think, I think it was my last big <laughs> one for the year. I don't think any others. So now, I mean, I get to shift into, you know, um, kind of getting ready for my, you know, my annual review, my tenure process, which we talked about tenure a little bit in our episode with Dr. Glass back in episode 49. And so that, you know, just that part of my job and what I do that that's kind of coming up. And thankfully, it's, you know, my last big tenure review before I go up for tenure, which is next year. So that's exciting. Well, you know, um, you know what you you know, what else you have coming up is what's that? Uh, in no, a couple weeks else? here, we have to do your formal uh, you know, semester podcast host, co-host uh, evaluation. So we're going to have to sit down. I'm going to formally evaluate you. I have a, awesome. a grading rubric. That's right. To see if you're going to let me continue on in the spring, right? Right. Yeah. It's kind, we- of, kind of a comprehensive yeah. type, you know, if you move forward yeah. in the program. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, so mm. for our listeners, wish me luck, y'all. Robert, you know, I'm sure be rough, right? 
Yeah, um, well, it, well, you know, we'll kind of crowdsource it. Send us some tweets and stuff. How you think Holly's doing? Uh, you know, that's awesome. I'm just, um, I'm just kidding. Don't do that. <laughs> or do it if you think she's great. Go ahead. If not, then don't. Oh, oh that's funny. Well, yeah. So, anyways, um, so yeah, so that's gonna be fa- kind of fun shifting into that, and then, you know, just getting ready for the spring and some shifts, some research projects that I've got going on, and I know the project with um, Dr. Pierce that we had on earlier, and then you know we're gonna have a guest coming up soon who I'm doing some research with too, and. You know, the, the project that we're working on right now is moving forward. So that's been good. And, and there are a couple of others. So I don't know. I What I love, I'll just say, the thing that I love about this time of year and shifting from classes is there's just this, this chance to breathe a little bit as much as I love teaching. And I do. I mean, teaching is one of the top reasons why I got my PhD. Um, I just, there's something about molding and pouring into and shaping future social workers that I adore. But this this shift in this season where time opens up and I have a little bit more time to write, um, to do research, that is just, I can't explain it. It's, I mean, I'm just really excited about it. So That's awesome. it's good. Yeah, it's just a it's a big heartbeat behind how I serve um, individuals and communities is, is through doing this research. And so so I'm excited to have a little bit more space for that too coming up. So yeah, no, yeah. that's awesome. I think there's a good analogy there to maybe kind of transition is yes. talking about kind of the the busy part of the year when you're doing things, but then also it's important to have kind of this back end where we rest and get to do things that are yes. refilling for us, right? And so uh, yep. maybe parallels great with our episode today. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So um, today we uh, we have Dr. Michael Scullin, who is a faculty member at Baylor University. Um, he's going to be talking a little bit about his research and especially around, I mean, his research is primarily on sleep and cognition and thinking about how sleep impacts our mental health in general. So he, he unpacks quite a bit in terms of like the science behind sleep and how it's impacting our brain and, you know, what's happening when we're not getting as much sleep in the evening, which this time of year for many of us, I think we struggle with in a lot of ways. We've, we've got a lot of tasks and things to wrap up for the year for students and faculty who are going through final season. You know, this can be a time where we think, well, maybe I'm not going to I'll get some less sleep tonight so that I can study for my final. But he actually talks about that in this episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? And like why, you know, and he pushes back against that and explains what the research says about why it's so important that we choose sleep over just trying to cram a little bit more for that test. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah. There's some really practical, I think at one point he goes through some really practical tips on getting better sleep, right? Because some, some folks yes. are going to say, look, when I lay down and try to get some more sleep, I just kind of toss and turn or my mind is racing. Mm-hmm. And so he gives some really practical tips. I happen to fall in that category for the most part, usually. You know? um, and so oh. he gives some good tips uh, about about that type of thing. Well, let me, I'm curious, I want to ask you, so following this episode, you know, he does, you're right, he gives us these 10 different tips, right, to help improve sleep. Mm -hmm. So of those, I'm going to ask you, I mean, granted, you have Gray, who keeps you, (laughs) (laughs) you know, there's, there's a little bit of a, you know, when you have a little one that that can kind of throw things off a little bit, but, but have you adopted any of these tips? Have you tried any of these since this episode? I have, you know what, to be perfectly honest, I have... (laughs) 
adopted <laughs> them essentially to the same level as when we had Dr. Korn on and we talked about nutrition oh, yeah. and mental health. Uh, I've adopted uh-huh. them much to the same level where I agree in theory with all of them, right? And then I, there's some of them that I think, hey, I can really do these, right? So uh, like I started drinking a lot more water after Dr. Korn's episode because that's something really tangible and practical that I can do. Uh, mm-hmm. so in this one, I think, you know, I, I try to look at my phone less and things like that right before bed and trying to mm-hmm. kind of create more calming atmospheres and things like that, or environments, I should say. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but then some of them, uh, obviously gray factors in heavily because you and I were yes. actually just talking before we hit record and we thought That's maybe right. we should have recorded that, uh, only very <laughs> recently has consistent sleep been, uh, even remotely an option. Right. Uh, but so, you know, trying to do, trying to do the ones, and we've talked about this a lot of kind of taking the small steps, right? But That's doing the right. ones that I, I can do and I can succeed and feel good about and then having having a lot of the other ones, you know, keeping them in mind as here's here's some goals, here's what I would really like to be doing and, and not saying, well, I can never do those, but not mm-hmm. beating myself up if I can't, you know, hit all 10 of these suggestions he has each time or I can't eat healthy mm-hmm. constantly because we've got a, a hectic schedule or, you know, whatever it is, um, right. you know, making the small improvements that I can and then uh, keeping the others as goals, but not, not feeling bad that, you know, maybe, uh, I haven't, I haven't gotten them all yet. Yeah, no. And that's okay. That's, that's absolutely right. You're not, you know, you don't have to do all of them, but which, is there one though that you would say like, well, you mentioned the phone, you've been keeping your, you've been looking at it less and he does talk about that. Right. And like the blue light. Yeah. So, so would you say that's, that's kind of the one that you've adopted? That's probably the one that sticks out most in my mind. I don't uh-huh. have, uh, the, I don't have the document pulled up, uh, the notes. Oh from yeah, the show, no, that's okay. So Sorry. I couldn't name all 10 of them, but that's the one <laughs> no, that's that okay. I think because that's something that I, like, I knew beforehand anyway. Like, I know that mm-hmm. that's the case, uh, that looking at your phone stimulates your brain and things like that. But I think I've been more intentional of saying, like, hey, I'm going to put this down. I'm going to maybe if I need to listen to something, do that, but not have not be looking at it, which is a challenge, you know? I yeah. For most people would say, well, I lay there and it's it's kind of the instinct to, you know, roll that's over right. and look at it, scroll through just kind of mindlessly. Yep. Um, and so... It's- which is, I mean, which is why I keep it, literally, I keep our phone in, or my phone in the kitchen at night so that I don't even have that temptation because I know how hard that can be. Yeah. But I do appreciate, I mean, like the tips were so helpful and you're right. We can't, it's, you know, you, it, you'd be setting yourself up for failure if you tried to adopt all of them at once. So those baby steps help. Some of those I feel like I've been doing for a little while, but I know it, you know, linking back to Dr. Corns, I definitely have been trying to, if I'm going to drink caffeine, drink it much, you know, don't drink it at like three in the afternoon or four in the afternoon, but, you know, having it much earlier in the day. And then the other one that I actually have been doing, so Dr. Scullin talks about this in the episode, but we've seen a ton of media press on this at Baylor, where he talks about the importance of writing your to-do list at night, Mm, right before you go to bed. Um, and so that is something since this episode that I've adopted where I, I will write out my to-do list for the next day so that I can then just, you know, write it down and go to bed and not have to sit there and worry about making sure I remember all the things the next day. Yeah. So that's really helpful. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. I love that. Yeah. So anyways, well, do you have anything else or any other updates? So you want to shift into this episode? Yeah, no, I think that's about it for me. We can go ahead and you know transition in. Uh, anything else from you? No, I think just with the this time of year, with holidays, with finals, with with everything that I know, everyone's kind of got going on. 
I really do hope that this episode serves our listeners, um, especially this time of year. So mm, yeah. yeah, take good care of yourselves, y'all. This is this is a busy time of year. So hopefully this helps with thinking about your sleep. So yeah. all right. Well, enjoy y'all. Hey, welcome back to CXMH. Today, Robert and I are joined by Dr. Michael Scullin as our guest. Uh, Dr. Scullin is the director of the Sleep Neuroscience and Cognition Laboratory at Baylor University. He completed his PhD at WashU and St. Louis and a postdoctoral fellowship uh, at Emory University School of Medicine. He has published over 50 articles, has been funded by the National Institutes of Health and private foundations, and his sleep research has been covered by many news agencies, ranging from local news to BBC Radio to Good Morning America and more. Dr. Scullin investigates the interplay of sleep and cognition across the adult lifespan, including whether specific components of sleep physiology, so like the slow wave sleep or uh, REM sleep, which uh, many of us have probably heard of before, how that promotes memory, and whether poor sleep in college students impairs learning. He also studies whether age-related changes in sleep patterns underlie changes in brain and cognitive functioning as we age and neurodegenerative disease conditions. Dr. Scullin, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me on. Yeah. Is there anything I missed in the bio? <laughs> uh, <laughs> only that I am a perpetual eight-hour and 15-minute sleeper, with one exception. Two years ago, we had our first son, and ever since we are <laughs> raising an infant and, and now a toddler, uh, that's become a little bit more variable but but you can go to grad school you know all that you you can sleep eight hours the kids kids definitely throw a wrench in things yes they do can very much relate at this moment that's right well congratulations to you and your family robert do you want to share yeah we as, yeah. we as we record this actually tomorrow so not when this comes out but when as we're recording it tomorrow my son will turn six months old so uh, and the past couple weeks have been worse than the weeks before that in terms of how he is sleeping. So I, uh, I can relate to that sentiment of it just throwing a wrench in uh, what, what you established as sleeping patterns. Yeah, yeah. The scheduling of it, the regularity of it is, is, is really hard. And uh, somewhat ironically, the only time in my life that I've ever pulled an all-nighter was on the night that my son was born, you know, when my uh, wife was going into labor. It's like, uh -huh. did you really have to induce at midnight, guys? You know, could we, <laughs> do, you, do you know my background? You know, sleep That's awesome. Let, let's get a good eight hours and then let's begin to push. That's yeah. so funny. So one of the things that when we were leading up to uh, delivery, one of the things that Brooke kept saying to her stomach was, hey, just let me get a good eight hours of sleep and then wake up and shower and then, you know, do your thing. And exactly like you've said, uh, at, you know, 1230 at night, she said, hey, I think we got to go to the hospital. Mm -hmm. And it was literally all night until the next day. Mm -hmm. yep. Seems like it just yep. works that way. Yep. Yeah. Callie and Oliver <laughs> had a similar agenda. I, yep. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, man. They're, they're setting the stage, right? For the first, yeah. the first year of life of, of those variable sleep patterns. It's uh, life gets a lot easier once they get on more regular patterns. Yes. Well, hopefully. I know we, we have a two and a half year old who he still is keeping us up 
Um, mm-hmm. And I'm sure that, I don't know, it's just very, each kid is different. So mm-hmm. uh, Tally was 12 hours every night religiously and, and our son is just teaching us a new way. So anyways, well, um, so that's, so aside from adding that big, exciting um, news in your bio, is there anything else or... Oh, I, th- I think that's a, a great coverage. I, I really appreciate that. We, I think the the heart of the matter is that we're interested on sleep at pretty much every level. Can we help yeah. uh, students sleep better? Can we help working adults sleep better? Can we help patients who might have some condition sleep mm-hmm. better? Because we know that sleep relates to our cognitive, physical, and mental health on every level. And so we can make some changes and and that should translate and does translate to better uh, cognition, better mental health, and, and also, of course, physical health. Yeah, that's good. Well, and I definitely want to dive into more of the why behind this um, in just a bit. But before we, we go into too much in terms of the research um, that you've done on sleep, do you mind telling us a little bit about your journey into this line of work and research and kind of what got you into wanting to study sleep in the first place? Yeah, so uh, first off, if you had told uh, the high school me that one day I was going to be a scientist, I would have thought that you were just that it was the biggest joke on this planet. Like that was not <laughs> in high school. No, I, I was, um, I, I just wasn't interested in, 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 in science at, at that stage of my life. And all my family members had really gone into business. So the expectation was I would end up following a similar pathway. And I got to college and I began taking, you know, like intro economics and, you know, some people get into that class and they just love it. And that just wasn't me. It wasn't me mm-hmm. at, at all. And at the same time, I enrolled in uh, Introduction to Psychological Science. And I had just the best instructor you could ever imagine. His name was Dr. Einstein. Like, no what? <laughs> No way. Dr. Einstein, yeah. That's awesome. And, That's gotta be and he actually... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so he, he actually is uh, distantly related to the Albert Einstein. So, you know, he's, he's got That's those good cool. science genes. And he, he was just fantastic and, and, and really turned, turned around my mindset of what science was. It, it's not all about, you know, test tubes and, and math equations. Yeah, that's a part of it. That's a good part of it. But what got me excited was using the scientific methodology to answer fundamental questions about human behavior and the way that we think, our mental processes. And I just, I found that so fascinating. So when I was in college, I ended up asking Dr. Einstein if I could work in his research lab. And so for about three years, we did research on memory and aging. And I found that really interesting. So I decided to pursue a graduate degree with actually one of his longtime collaborators. And again, I was just doing memory and aging. But somewhere along the way, I I felt like I was just kind of describing how memory worked or just describing how memory got worse as you got older. And, And I felt like there was a hole there. There was a hole in 
why does it get so much worse mm. as we get older? And okay. so that led me to thinking about, okay, what other health conditions might be occurring in your 20s and 30s and 40s that could set the stage for whether you sort of age really gracefully or, or have some memory impairments, some cognitive impairments. And what, my, what really caught my eye was this developing literature on sleep. And the literature on sleep, it was, it was really just a bunch of neurobiology studies, meaning it was a bunch of studies on fruit flies and rodents. And while that's really interesting in understanding what types of brain processes are occurring while you sleep, I, I really felt like there was this opportunity to apply some of this what we call bench science to uh, more applied issues such as how does memory change as we get older and why does it change? Mm. And so at that point, once I realized that I set out on this intentional track of, okay, I'm going to do a master's thesis and I'm going to do a dissertation thesis on this. Then I'm going to go and spend three years in a sleep medicine clinic to get additional training. And so once I identified that that's a, major gap in our knowledge of health. That's a major mm. gap in our knowledge of how we age well versus age mm -hmm. well. At that stage, things became much clearer the direction that I needed to go. Yeah. No, that's awesome. I love hearing kind of how um, just that whole arc of how starting from when you were young and, you know, this assumed direction that you would go into and then just how at some point along the way, you know, you just kind of wake up to something that interests you. And in some ways, it sounds like falling in love with it and just running with it. Um, I love that. That's just so awesome. Yeah. So you mentioned there some links between sleeping and memory, right? That's part of kind of what you mentioned there. But we know that there's kind of a number of benefits of getting good sleep. Could you briefly touch on some of those? Because I think we all would say, yeah, yeah, sure, sleep is important. But there's very concrete benefits of getting good sleep, right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I'll start off with what's probably most intuitive to people. When you haven't been sleeping well, you wake up the next day and you just don't feel quite as alert. Now, neurobiologically, what's happening is actually quite interesting. Your frontal lobe and the memory systems of your brain just aren't firing very efficiently. They're not communicating very efficiently. So there's actually on a neural level, very clear changes to your brain when you're not sleeping well versus when you are sleeping well. You might conceptualize it as for a long time we said, well, sleep exists to restore us. That's true. But what we're now saying is sleep exists to specifically restore the brain. It seems to be really important for brain efficiency. And that was sort of our intro level of this might be what's happening. What we've recently discovered, and by recently, I mean in like scientific history in the last decade or two, what we've discovered is that when you go to sleep, one of the functions of sleep is to actually reactivate what you learned earlier that day. And the reason why your brain would want to do that is when you're initially learning something, there's all this interfering information. There's all this distracting information. And so stuff can get lost easily. I mean, we forget things all, all the time. But one of the reasons why we retain some information is at night it gets reactivated 
And at that point, it's more easily consolidated because there's just not all of this interference. When you go into slow wave sleep, which is considered your sort of deep level of sleep, you see a communication between the two regions of the brain that are really most important to memory functioning, a small little region called the hippocampus and a really big region called the prefrontal cortex. Those two regions begin to dialogue when you get into slow wave sleep, and it seems to be with the intention of reactivating memories and uh, helping to preserve them, stabilize them for a long period of time. And then there's a third function, and this is this actually is a really recent uh, scientific discovery in just the last couple of years. It, it's so, so fascinating. When you go to sleep, there's an increase in the fluid uh, in, in your brain. So all of our body, you know, we're, we're actually like a high proportion of water. And there's this liquid in our brain called cerebral spinal fluid. The flow of that liquid increases substantially when you go to sleep. And the function is the same as if you were a plumber trying to clean out stuff that's like in a pipe. You flush it out of the system with increased velocity. Well, throughout the day, we're accumulating all of these sort of metabolites, all of these things that we don't want to hang around in our brain. But sleep, when we increase the velocity, the flow of that cerebral spinal fluid, it takes it away. And I'll give you a specific example. So for researchers who are interested in Alzheimer's disease, uh, or even if you're a caregiver of someone, you've probably heard the term plaques and tangles. Well, the um, sort of molecular basis of that, the, the hallmark, the hallmark neuropathology of Alzheimer's disease is something called amyloid. That, that's in everyone's body, it's, or in everyone's brain, and it builds up every single day. The only difference or the main difference is how well you are at clearing out that amyloid. Mm. Well, when you go to sleep at night, one of the functions is you increase that cerebral spinal fluid flow and it washes out the amyloid from your brains. Mm. Gosh, that is just so interesting. Well, so I, so I appreciate how you're, you know, beginning to unpack some of these benefits of sleep. And I know and trust that we'll talk even further about some of these through this. But one of the things I'm first thinking of is um, the fact that certainly we live in a culture today that is just so heavily oriented towards busy and values productivity, which can certainly often disrupt sleep. And, you know, we talked about parenthood and those early days and how that can disrupt sleep. But I also think about you know, just our culture and that go, go, go orientation that we have. And I'll speak to myself when I certainly say, you know, oh, I'll just lose an hour of sleep tonight. That's fine. I'll make it up tomorrow. But, and certainly that doesn't always happen. Rarely does it happen. So I'm curious, one, you know, how much sleep do we really need each night? And then two, can you talk a little bit about that process of like catching up on sleep? Is that, is that realistic? And what does that look like? And you know, because you and I both, I know we have students who are like, well, I'll pull an all-nighter tonight. And and I'm sure we'll talk about some of your research on that too. But, you know, but then what does that do and how does that impact? And can we catch up on sleep really? Yeah. Great questions. So I'll, I'll start off by noting that the National Sleep Foundation just did a 
a survey of Americans, and what they discovered was that only 10% of Americans say that they that sleep is a priority for them. Oh my so, gosh. You know, I don't know <gasps> if I should say oh, you're in wow. good company or no. you're in bad company. <laughs> One of those two. Well, that even that sounds. I mean, to me, it it goes along with a lot of things that we talk about. Where sleep somewhat seems. I mean, to if someone says, "Hey, is sleep a priority?" That almost sounds selfish to say, like, "Oh, yes, I prioritize my sleep over whatever the other responsibilities in my life." Right. So, do you think that factors? I mean, because we know that you know self care and being still, all of these kind of get shoved aside. And sometimes in the in the vein of like, well, that would be kind of selfish, right? I should be doing other things. Do you think maybe that is a, a factor? Yeah, I definitely think it's it's a factor, and and it's it's got good intentions, right? Like there's tons of other health things that we could be doing that we're told that we should do, and you know, where does sleep fall on that list? There was this other really recent study of college students and tracking how many college students have actually received any information on sleep health from their university, from, you know, the administrators or from student health. And they, they compiled a list of, of like the top 19 topics and sleep came in at number 18 of 19 topics. Oh my gosh. Only 27% of college students have received any sort of information on sleep health from their university. Mm. But here's the thing. They all want it. Like over two thirds of students report that they want that information. So yes, we do live in a culture where it's not prioritized. Uh, yes, it, it with all of our responsibilities and the way that our culture pushes us, it kind of sounds like, oh, if I sleep more, am, am I truly being more, more selfish? But I think the fact of the matter is that when you're not sleeping well, you realize how important it is. And mm-hmm. you would like to get more sleep because then we realize when I'm, when I'm running on good sleep, when I'm well rested, I'm a much better me. I'm a better me for me and I'm a better yeah. me for everyone mm-hmm. around me. And so in the end, it's actually way more efficient to get that extra hour of sleep than it is to be cutting back and, and always feeling like you're, you know, uh, I don't know, chasing the responsibilities, right? Yeah. It sounds like kind of an extension of what sometimes we talk about with self-care where, you know, just a little bit of self-care or just pausing or whatever it is may feel like, hey, I'm, I'm kind of wasting this small amount of time, but you're going to be more productive. You're going to be in a better mood. You're going to be, like you said, a better you mm-hmm. moving forward. So it's actually, you know, in the long term, better for how you're functioning and how you're doing everything else. And I think sleep is probably that, you know, amplified up a lot because your body literally needs it. Uh, that's right. And, you know, to address your other question, Holly, about how mm-hmm. much sleep do we actually need? Because maybe you're saying, well, I'm, I'm normally getting eight hours. How, how bad is it to get seven? Yeah. It's a little bit tricky. Here's, here's how the American Academy of Sleep Medicine has, has approached it. They came out with uh, quote unquote consensus guidelines two years ago. And the consensus guidelines were that adults should sleep seven to nine hours every single night. And the reason why it's uh, a consensus is that everyone on the panel was able to say that, yes, nine hours could be appropriate for some, 
Yes, eight hours could be appropriate for some and seven hours could be appropriate for some. But the problem is when you generate that consensus guideline and you communicate it to the whole population, yeah. everyone thinks they're a seven-hour sleeper. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no one looks at that and says, I actually need nine hours of sleep. And and even if they did beforehand, now they're being told, well, you really only need seven to nine. Well, then how bad is it cutting back to seven? No, it's, mm. it's, it's bad. They've run studies on people who are eight-hour sleepers who have been cut back to seven and a half every single night. And they followed them for two weeks. And you can f- see um, by after about a week of, of time, the objective measures of, for example, how alert they are, how, how good is their cognitive functioning, it begins to decline. So mm-hmm. even cutting back just really gradually, night after night after night, it's going to have some cumulative effect across time. Yeah, no, that's so fascinating. That's and it's scary. I mean, it's it's you know alarming for me and thinking how I do that sometimes with oh I'll just skip an hour tonight. It's fine. And you know my through my PhD you know dissertation days it was much more than just an hour. <laughs> but it's good to to wake up and realize that even just that that thirty minutes has such a big impact over just a week. I wondered if you could share with us a little bit. I know when, you know, I've been lucky to get to hear you speak on this topic. Could you tell us a little bit about that one study that was done with the driving and the impact that lack and less sleep has on us when we're driving? Yeah. So yeah, (laughs) there's a whole literature now on what's called drowsy driving. And the, what we're learning is that it's a major risk factor for for accidents. There's, uh, they estimate that 16% of all fatal accidents were actually due to drowsy driving. So people who are running off of five hours of sleep, you know, four hours of sleep, or even just someone who's been getting six hours night after night after night after night after night when really they need eight hours of sleep. So there's been a few studies. One is uh, was this. This great news story, actually, on CBS, where a news anchor went to the um, to Harvard's sleep program and said, "I, I want to test this out." And so he pulled an all-nighter before going into the program. And he got there. They hooked him up to all of their physiological equipment, and they said, "All right, now we're going to have you get on the road and drive on this, you know, closed this closed course." Mm-hmm. And we're going to have an experimenter there with you who has access to a break just in case anything happens. And, and he's saying, well, you know, I don't feel great right now, but I think I'm fine. You know, I, just like a lot of us say, you know, I, I don't feel great, but, you know, I'll rally. I, I, can, uh, I can just work harder. I'll just keep my eyes open more and, and I'm going to be fine. So he gets in the car and they drive around for about half an hour up until the point where he starts driving off the road Mm -hmm. and the experimenter hits the brakes he gets out and he says oh my gosh i i I think i better stop well that wasn't the surprising part i mean maybe it was to him personally that he'd drive off the road but that wasn't the surprising part when he went back to the lab they showed him his physiological data And what they showed him is that before he actually drove completely off the road, he had actually fallen asleep two dozen times. 
Oh my gosh. They're called oh microbes. Gosh. And we have them all the time. Basically, your brain, when it is super sleepy, it's just going to force you to go to sleep. Even if it's just for three seconds, four seconds, five seconds, or six seconds, it's going to force you to go to sleep. And you can actually have your eyes open at this time. It can look like you are awake. Now you're going to look drowsy. You know, no one's going to look at you and say, oh man, that person is really paying attention alert, but it's going to look like you're awake unless you're actually studying, measuring from the brain physiologically you can see that someone is falling asleep for that period of time. And that seems to be the cause of all of these accidents. People get on the road and um, you know, they fall asleep for you know, five seconds straight. Well, if you're going down a highway, that's the length of a football field that you just passed in that period in which you were sleeping. A lot can happen in the length oh of, of a football field. And when he, pulled, when he ran off the road, that was at a point when he was – uh, when the road was curving. And so you could see how that would happen. Whereas oftentimes you're driving down a highway and you see these cars ahead of you begin to swerve off, but then they hit those uh, rumbles, you know, the rumble sticks or whatever they're mm-hmm. called. Yeah. And mm-hmm. Then they pull back over. Well, that's not always a micro sleep, but a lot of the time it is. <laughs> so I would, yeah. I would recommend you, if you see that happening, uh, maybe. Um, I don't know. I, I wouldn't drive too closely. Yeah, I would say back up a little bit, yeah, maybe. Yeah. yeah, back off a little bit. Well, one thing it seems like, I mean, there you've mentioned kind of just powering through, but one thing it seems like that maybe even increasingly we're turning to is saying, hey, I'm going to use a bunch of caffeine or something like that to kind of power through, right? I know I, I was just reading a thing where somewhere in between 30 and 50% of adolescents and adults in the United States pretty regularly drink energy drinks, which we would probably guess aren't the healthiest things. I'm sure if that was cups of coffee, it would go up exponentially. When we do that, I mean, obviously that's kind of a substitute for, I mean, your body is saying, I need some rest. Is there any kind of indication of how that plays out? I mean, because you're essentially saying, no, you don't need rest. I'm going to make you power through. And we know caffeine can later on make you kind of worse at sleeping depending on how much you're drinking anyway. But is there any uh, research or data that you know of on how that impacts us? Yeah. So it's it's a very temporary solution. And, and the reason why I underscore very temporary is that what caffeine does pharmacologically is blocks the signal in your, in your brain that tells you you're sleepy. It doesn't actually change the underlying drive to sleep. So you might not be subjectively feeling as sleepy, but it's not changing your brain's drive to actually fall asleep at any given time. And you probably know some people who they'll drink some caffeine and they will fall asleep very quickly after that. Now that's a whole different discussion, Mm -hmm. but I think it underscores that if you're that sleep deprived, you should probably be looking for other alternatives to get where you're going other than just, you know, let's have a big energy drink or let's have a couple of cups of coffee and then get back on the road. Yeah. Yeah, So so obviously kind of average, we would say 8.5. And you mentioned different people needing different things. Are there different age ranges that need more or less sleep? I'm thinking of, you know, maybe even specifically adolescents or teenagers, right? We would say probably need more. Uh, Is there any any well-established guidelines? Yeah. And the um, American Academy of Sleep Medicine also came out with some guidelines for 
uh, infants through through adolescence, through teenagers, and teenagers really need eight to ten hours every single night. Again, you hear that range, eight to ten hours, and like, oh, they're fine off of eight hours. They really might not be. Like, you might have a teenager that needs ten hours, and if they need ten hours, you know, let's get them to to have ten hours. If you have a six-month-old, I mean, that six-month-old is probably <laughs> sleeping, you know, maybe fourteen hours a day. You know, I, I, I'm trying to remember, but very that sporadically. Part. Yeah, no, yeah. across many, many different naps, they might be sleeping somewhere from twelve to sixteen hours a day, and that's that's okay. That's that's a good thing. There's a ton of brain development that has to go on, and sleep is helping their brains. To develop, so yes, the recommendations do change as you get older. For adults, it's pretty much it's pretty stable in that seven to nine hour range, and really, I, I would say the optimum is is going to be eight hours, unless you really know you need more. And if you know you need more, then do yourself a favor and and listen to to that signal that your body's telling you that yep. you're really a nine hour sleeper. That's yep. that's not a bad thing. You know, get get the sleep that you need, you're going to function better because of it. Hmm. So to follow up on kind of that chunk there, and you even mentioned adolescents needing maybe a, a little bit more. Uh, I'm, I've pretty recently read a book all about what happens in the brain during adolescence. And there's a whole chapter on sleep and the impact that that has on adolescence, because that's a pretty heavy brain development time as well. And it talked about this idea that the, I guess, time period or the periods of day that adolescents typically are designed to sleep are different than, you know, early infants or even adults, right? So they they are kind of biologically wired to go to sleep later and sleep in later, which sometimes is frustrating to parents and things like that, right? Is that consistent with anything that you found? Yeah, it, it absolutely is. Um, and and it's not just frustrating to the parents; it's also frustrating to to schools and to teachers and to bus schedules and. It's it's a really really challenging issue, but teenagers and young adults, so, so college age adults, mm-hmm. their biological rhythms have them going to bed later and waking up later. That's natural. Now, do they go a little overboard? Oh yeah, oh yeah, they do. They they do stay out later than they need to stay out for social reasons, and mm-hmm. so to the extent that. Uh, You've got someone staying out till three, four in the morning, and you can sort of rope them back in and say, "Hey, let's try that midnight bedtime." You should try to do that. Um, but yes, we do need to be understanding that there are natural biological rhythms that are being shifted uh, a little bit later, beginning in, in in adolescence. And as parents, we should be understanding of that and a little bit flexible. And that's also why there's this push in, in many cities to delay school start times. You know, some schools start before 8 a.m. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, no, they should be in REM sleep at 8 a.m. In fact, there's a classic study that took teenagers and instead of sending them to class, which was supposed to start at 8 a.m., they sent them to the sleep lab. Well, when you measure teenagers who were taken from class and, and stuck in, in the sleep lab at 8 a.m., they all look like they have narcolepsy. 
And the reason is narcolepsy is defined by you go directly into your REM sleep and you fall asleep almost immediately. It's, you know, in this context, it's not that they actually have a disease or a disorder. What it represents is that their biology should be having them in REM sleep at the same time that we're saying you need to be sitting in class. Mm. Gosh, that is so fascinating. It is. I think the author of this book, I think even she had done a thing where she had advocated with her local school system to put move finals to start at 10 instead of 8 a.m. And even the test scores without changing anything else had gone drastically up just because <laughs> that's a, a more natural time for teens and adolescents to be using their brain. Oh, that that's really interesting. And And you know what else I bet it does is discourages the all-nighter because if you know that your test mm. is going to be at 8 a.m. and you're staying out late, it's 3, it's 4, maybe you're hit with the decision of, well, you know, I'm going to have to be up in a couple hours anyway. Why don't I just stay up the whole time? And and that's really not a good decision. That's not what we want students to do. So maybe pushing it back to 10 or 11, you know, <laughs> now it seems really far away. Yeah, I should at least get a few hours of sleep. Yeah, that's good. Well, that actually loops, you know, the next question that I was wanting to ask you about. So I do want to, I definitely want to talk about these tips that you have um, to improve sleep. But I know that a lot of these are not only born out of previous studies that were done, but also some research you've done here at Baylor, particularly around the impact of um, sleep on test scores. And so I'd love to hear a little bit about that work that you've done and, and what you're finding with college students with sleep and the impact that it has. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I guess it goes back to early when I started at Baylor, I, I began teaching a class on sleep. And the students were really interested in it. They really engaged with the material. Every single week they'd come in, great questions, want to talk about it. And so I, I'd also come in, you know, mid-semester, and as the semester went on, I'd ask them, okay, so how are you sleeping now? How many hours of sleep did you get last night? And I'd get responses like, oh, I got five hours. Oh, my like, gosh. Oh, what, what about you? <laughs> how, how many hours did you get? Oh, uh, last night I only got like three hours. Uh, and so it was really discouraging. No. You know, I, I, I felt like, uh, well, I, I thought I was doing a, a decent job, you know, teaching and they seem engaged. So what's, what's happening? You know, and what I began to realize is that even if we know that sleep is important, that doesn't necessarily mean that we are going to just change our behaviors to get more sleep. It's, it's, to get more sleep, you've got to identify some habits in your life and you've got to manage your time a little bit better. And so it requires some, some effort. And I was seeing that in my students. And so it got me to thinking, well, what would get them to change their sleeping behaviors? What, what could I do to motivate these students who seem engaged, who seem interested to actually take that next step and change their behavior. So it got mm -hmm. to be finals week. And I was just thinking, uh, th this is going to be the same as all finals weeks. We, we had monitored student sleep uh, through a number of finals weeks before, and we found um, anywhere from 0% to 7% of students would maintain eight hours. So almost no students maintained eight hours. Uh, just as bad, almost none of them maintained even the minimum seven hours, only like 
10, 15% would maintain seven hours of sleep. And so I just had this idea that uh, I emailed the students and I said, what I have for you this coming finals week is what I'm going to call the eight hour challenge. Mm -hmm. If you can sleep for an average of eight hours throughout all of final exams week, then I'm going to award you eight extra credit points on your final exam. However, <laughs> and, and, uh, however, if you sleep for less than six hours, I'm going to remove six points from your final exam. Ooh, <laughs> yeah. man. <laughs> Total eel. And we've yeah. actually moved away from that in our future research. But this is just where my mind was going <laughs> at the time. Yeah. got to get rid of the all-nighter. What can I do to mm -hmm. address this? And so, uh, Holly, I, I had no idea how the students would respond to this. And I told them that if they were going to take the challenge, they were going to have to wear this um, thing called an actigraphy device it's sort of like a fitbit but but it really measures total sleep time quite accurately and what ended up happening in that first class is that half of the class said okay i'm gonna give it a try i don't know how it's gonna turn but i'm gonna give it a try and <laughs> i don't know i mean what how do you think they would do i mean you think that any student could do this it's finals week i yeah I, I just, I, well, I know. Robert, what do you think? I mean, I know because I've heard you talk about this, but I want to hear what Robert thinks. Uh, I would say usually they would probably do poorly given that you attached such weight to it with grades and things that, I mean, we've even done episodes on that before, but the things that have maybe a higher value in our mind than quote unquote getting good sleep, I would mm -hmm. guess that they probably did pretty well or at least like significantly better than they would have done if you hadn't done that. Yeah. So of of the students who tried this, every single one of them averaged more than eight hours of sleep. Oh, wow. That's awesome. That's right. Oh, that's awesome. And that was that was the first time we did it. We've now repeated it in in a few other classes, some which I'm the instructor, some which I have absolutely nothing to do with that it don't actually have any sleep um, education as, as part of the courses. And what we found is that when you account for all of the students who say, you know, I'm not going to try or those students who, who don't end up succeeding, what we find is that about 50 to 60 percent of students can become eight hour sleepers during final exams. And even yeah. more interestingly, or from my perspective, even more interestingly, we can now take the number of people who are seven-hour sleepers during final exams from somewhere around 10 to 15%, and now we get it up all the way to 90%. Yeah. So it's like – and I'm not saying every single – educator in America is going to start offering extra credit and all that stuff, but it, it shows proof of principle that – this is achievable, that we can sleep more and, and that it's not necessarily a bad thing. Well, actually, I haven't, <laughs> haven't given you that result yet. The, what's, what should be on everyone's mind is, but how did they actually do on the final exam? Because mm -hmm. every student is thinking, well, I can't sleep more because then I'm going to sacrifice my studying and I'm going to sacrifice my performance. I, I have to stay up. Yeah. What we found is actually the opposite. Mm. students who sleep eight or more hours during the final exams perform on average almost five points better on their final exam 
than those who do not. And that's after correcting for a whole array of different variables, including, you know, what what was their grade prior to the final exam? Hmm. Mm. So that's so interesting because it does – it points to this values judgment of it's more important for me to stay up and study than to get some sleep. Or in in the case of this, it's important enough for me to get five extra points or whatever it was that I'm going to go to sleep. But that's counterproductive because if we could communicate to people and really get them to buy into if you get sleep, you will do better anyway. And it seems like maybe that would be the driving force of, well, then I'm going to get some sleep. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And and then I think if we can use that to feed back into changing cultural mindset mm-hmm. where we're now saying sleep is cool, sleep is a good thing, and you've got your roommates doing that, you've got your parents giving that message, everyone around you is sharing in that belief, then then I don't see any reason why as as a broader culture we can't improve our sleep and if we improve our sleep <laughs> I think we're going to see benefits to our culture. I think it's, yeah. I think it's really going to be a good thing. And I, I think our greatest fears of, oh, is it going to hurt us economically? Is it going to hurt us, uh, our education system? I, I, I really think we're going to be positively surprised by the outcomes. Yeah, that's so good. So that is, it's just so important. And I appreciate how, you know, you're rephrasing this, like in thinking about our culture and our values and how, you know, we do begin to take these small steps towards this type of change overall. Um, I know Robert and I, we've talked about this on previous episodes, you know, always those, those tiny steps, um, those baby steps really can have a big impact overall in a number of different areas of our lives, but certainly with sleep too. I know you recently published a list of these top 10 tips that that you have sort of honed in on to help improve our sleep. Do you mind kind of going through these and unpacking them with us? Um, oh, yeah. I'd love yeah. to. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. So my first tip is that we this is hard, but if you can make this change, it's, it's really going to help. You got to avoid using electronics near bedtime. We all like to get into bed, either turn on the TV or maybe, you know, get comfy with our our tablet and and iPhone. But what we're learning is not only is that affecting our sleep for reasons that you could guess, like if it's interesting, of course you're going to be staying awake rather than getting more tired. But even on a smaller level, what we find is that the light that's being emitted from your TV, your tablet, and your phone – sends a signal to your brain saying stop melatonin production and melatonin is a hormone that we need to feel sleepy at night. So if we've got this signal in front of our eyes, basically our brain is interpreting it as the sun is rising, you better feel alert. And Mm -hmm. obviously that's acting in opposition to sleep. So putting away the the phone when you're getting into bed, I think is, is a really good first step. And if you can do that, then I'd say, let's go on to step two. Can I put a plug? Can I put a plug in for step one? Okay. So step one is one that I have done for the last, I don't know, year and a half or so. And it, it is, it's life changing. Like I put my phone in the kitchen at night and then I go to bed and I don't keep it near me. So I don't even have a draw of needing to look at it. Or if I wake up in the middle of the night, there's no desire to pick it up and look. It's just out of the room. And so we actually have a no electronics in the in our bedrooms at night rule, like for this exact reason. 
So mm-hmm. Did I just want to uh, go out and buy like a, and I'm going to say old school, but not really that old school, but like an old school alarm clock to yes, help I with did. That. It was eight bucks at Target. <laughs> and, and, and so I do, I have a little, a little tiny alarm clock that I keep next to my bed and and that's what I use. And I'm not using that excuse of, oh, it's my alarm or, you know, my husband keeps his phone in the room in case there were ever emergencies, but he has it away from, and he's, he has no desire to pick it up in the middle of the night. So it was more me that would, you know, <laughs> that would check it in the middle of the night. But I just want to like shout it from the rooftops, how important keeping your electronics out of your bedroom at night and not looking at it is just so important. So, That's anyway. great. And I'll just add one more thing onto that. Yeah. It helps with disengaging from work. Yeah. Because we find ourselves with these phones, access to email. You could always be thinking about work. And I bet a lot of your listeners are thinking to themselves right now that, yep, I'm checking my email right before I go to bed. And if I wake up in the middle of the night, I'm checking my email. And the first thing I do in the morning is check my email. Yeah. Well, that might make you good at work or maybe it it makes it harder to compartmentalize aspects of your life and it's good to take those those breaks and i think that the bedroom is a a really good context for you to say this is where i'm going to break from work i'm just going to use the bedroom for relaxing activities Mm -hmm. that's good all right sorry on to your next good one (laughs) (laughs) sorry It's also really important for us to consider what we're consuming during the day. How we treat our day is going to affect how we sleep at night. A good example of this is your caffeine use. I think most people would say, yeah, if you have caffeine within an hour or two of going to bed, that's going to make it more difficult to fall asleep. What we don't know, what a recent placebo-controlled trial showed us is that caffeine consumption six hours before bedtime not only delayed how long it took for you to fall asleep, but it also significantly decreased slow-wave sleep, that deep stage of sleep that's very important for cognitive functioning. Mm. So really, you should be thinking, I'm going to limit my caffeine use to just the morning hours. And if I'm an afternoon caffeine person, well, Maybe that is that's room for improvement. Maybe that's that's a part of my life that I'm going to decide I'm going to tackle that. I'm still attached to my phone. I can't put that away, but I'm going to put away at least the caffeine. Should really be trying to one of these at a time and then building on them. Yeah, yeah. If you're going to consider what you're drinking in terms of liquids in the evening, you should also consider the solids too. So what you eat at dinner also impacts your sleep. The more uh, fiber you consume at at dinner, the better your slow-wave sleep quality. Conversely, hey, burgers, fries, pizza, those are really delicious, except they have a lot of saturated fats, and uh, high saturated fat content in your dinner is linked to worse sleep quality and also worse slow-wave sleep. So you really got to be mindful of what you're putting into your body during the day. It's all interactive with your sleep quality at night. We touched on this next tip a little bit earlier of really just using the bedroom for for relaxing activities. But just to make it uh, more concrete, our fourth tip is only use the bed 
for sleep, don't use it for studying, don't use it for entertainment, and certainly don't use it for work. And what we're doing there is we're trying to train our brain that as soon as I get into bed, I'm just going to be going into a relaxed state. The problem is that over the last several years, a lot of us have been training our brain that when we get into bed, that's when we become alert. That's when we become focused. That's when we've become uh, entertained. And and those uh, emotions, that alertness, obviously acts in opposition to, to sleep. And our brain learns to expect that. And so you can have this dissociation of, I know I need to get in bed, it's, it's late, but then you get in the bedroom and all of a sudden you feel this alertness. Well, it's, it's probably because you've been training your brain to expect that over a long period of time. Mm. So here's the solution. If, if you find yourself in, in that, uh, with that issue of going into bed and I'm, I'm, I'm feeling alert, I can't fall asleep. If you can't fall asleep within, let's say, 10 minutes or maybe 15, 20 minutes, just get up and leave the room. Mm. The worst thing you can do is just sit and stare at that clock and say, I can't believe it's been 40 minutes and I haven't fallen asleep. I can't believe it's been an hour. I can't believe it's been an hour and a half. That, that acts in opposition to sleep. You don't want to be in bed fearing not being able to fall asleep. So the solution is you get up out of bed, you go to a different room, don't turn on any bright lights, just if there's going to be any light, make sure it's really dim, don't do anything really exciting, just do something kind of boring, and wait until uh, that internal feeling of arousal, that physiological arousal, begins to settle back down. Mm. And as soon as you feel yourself just kind of settled back down, and your eyes begin to feel a little drowsy again, that's when you go back to bed. Don't do it before. Just really, really wait until you're hitting that, oh, yep, I've, I feel that physiological sleepiness again. Now I'm going to jump back to bed. And that's all about training your brain. It's training your brain over a long period of time of what the right thing is to expect when you're in bed. So if uh, so, that's something that will need to be applied over several nights to really get your brain to have the right expectations. All right. Tip number six is to <laughs> avoid long daytime naps. Mm. And <laughs> the reason is a lot of people cut back on, at night just saying, oh, well, I can get a nap later in the morning and, or in the afternoon. Um, if you actually do the math, there's no way that you're actually getting the recommended amount of sleep. I, I, get, I shouldn't say there's no way. Um, you're probably not getting the recommended amount of sleep, and you're probably not getting the amount of the right sleep stages that you should be getting. But here's the bigger issue. If you train your brain to expect naps, then it's actually more difficult to fall asleep at night, and your sleep quality is going to probably be worse that night because you had a nap earlier and because you're expecting a nap longer that day. There are ongoing trials right now where they take people who are nappers and they do what they're calling nap restriction. They, they restrict people from taking daytime naps. And what we're generally finding is that when you do that, people's sleep becomes more consolidated. They get better nighttime sleep and they're happier for it. They don't want to go back to the daytime naps. It's better to get yeah. really good sleep at night 
than to spread it out all across the day. Yeah. Speaking of consistency, tip number seven is go to bed and wake up at the same time every day. Here's the kicker, even on weekends. Mm. Oh. Yeah. There's something called social jet lag. Social jet lag is where you are kind of cutting back on sleep throughout the week, but you're sort of going to bed at about the same time. And then on the weekends, you go to bed super late and you also sleep in super late. So your total sleep time might be increased. You're trying to like recover on your sleep from, from the weekdays, but you're going to bed at a totally different time. The problem is this type of behavior causes Sunday night insomnia. Maybe you're not familiar with that term, but if you reflect on yourself, you're probably familiar with the concept. You get into bed on Sunday at what should be a normal time for a weeknight, and you find it more difficult to fall asleep. Mm. Well, basically, on Friday night and Saturday night, you went to bed so late that you were basically tricking your body into believing that you had taken an overnight trip to London, and now you were on the UK time zone. What you want to do is keep a consistent bedtime every single night because your circadian rhythms will be cued by that and will give you the sleepiness signals, the melatonin signals, at the same time every night rather than being way out of whack and having to try to change your schedule to and fro Mm -hmm. night. Our our, our circadian rhythms, they're good. They're just not that good. Tip number eight, a lot of us get into bed and we begin to ruminate. We ruminate about the uh, bad encounters that we had during the day. We, we ruminate about, uh, you know, I, I was doing my job and I thought I was doing it well, but then it just, I, I, I had some failure or I had some limitation there. I'm sort of worried about that. And, and then we, sometimes we get out of bed and we're just thinking, I have so much to do. I've oh, so- man. <laughs> and your brain just sort of cycles through all of that to-do list, everything that mm-hmm. you got to do the next day over the next couple of days. Okay. Here's- yeah, I love, well, I, oh, go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say, I love this one. I know this is one that has really been picked up in the media a lot with this. So, yeah. So, sorry. I don't mean to interrupt you. I'll let no, you finish no. talking about it, but. It has. It has. And it's because the solution seems so counterintuitive, but everyone who's tried it almost swears by it. Yep. The solution is to take everything that's just circulating throughout your mind and actually write it down on paper. Mm -hmm. There is something about physically writing it down on paper. And I'm not saying bust out your iPhone and type it in. You know, we talked about the problems with electronics. I'm saying keep a pad of paper and a pen on your nightstand, pull it out and write everything down for five minutes or 10 minutes. Just get it all out on a paper. And what you find is that when people start doing that, initially they feel quite quite stressed, but the further along they go, people's mental state totally changes. It totally changes to, you know what? I I guess things aren't so bad, or now I see I have a plan. Now I have everything written down, and uh, I, I, I don't have to remember it, so my brain doesn't have to cycle through it. I have this nice list that I can refer to. When we've done that, people have fallen asleep about 37% faster than they would have otherwise. This really works. Wow. It's, it's shown in a couple of different studies. Um, 
And there's also a long literature that's aside from the sleep literature sh uh, showing that if, if you're having issues with, for example, anxiety, mm -hmm. spending some time on, on a daily or near daily basis during the afternoon, even just writing everything out that you're anxious about, does have positive clinical outcomes across time. So if, if you're someone out there who has, not, <laughs> who has that issue with rumination, try writing things down. You might be surprised by how well it can work. And it's so, I mean, that's so simple. And it's one, I mean, I've tried doing it for the past couple of years is instead of thinking, okay, here's all the things that I need to remember to do tomorrow, right? Just jotting a, a yep. quick checklist or whatever it is. And that's so simple. It's, I mean, but then it's out of your brain. And I mean, it makes sense to me. Okay. My brain isn't kind of using some of its brain power to try and remember these things. They're not, yep. you know, they, oh, they have to be in there. It's well, they're, I just jotted them down real quick. And then when I wake up tomorrow, there they are, you know? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yep. Exactly I'm the right. same way. I get nervous at night. You know, if I lay down and, and I'm thinking of all the things that I have to do tomorrow and then I'm worrying about the fact that I might forget them. And it's just, it is, it's, it's just a terrible cycle. And so, yeah, so this has probably been the other thing that I've adopted. Um, and actually I totally give you credit, Michael, for this, because when <laughs> I saw you seriously, when I started seeing this, you know, kind of being circulated more, um, in Baylor's news, I decided to start trying it and, and I've done the to-do list, you know, for my day and I, I have to, I mean, I live by my like actual pen and paper, you know, to-do list pad, but, but just being able to do it at night and to write what I need to do tomorrow is basically the last thing I do in the evening. It is so helpful. Oh, that's great to hear. That's really, yeah. really good to hear. Well, so thank you. I mean, seriously, <laughs> it's been so helpful. So yeah, oh, that's great. That's yeah. great. Now, uh, the ninth tip on this list, I, I kind of list pretty far down because we've heard this like our entire life, engage in aerobic exercise. <laughs> We know that aerobic exercise is really good for our heart. It's really good for, for like every health, health outcome. And so it's going to be on like any list. But here's where I want to get a little bit specific. Here's what something you may not have thought about before. You should engage in aerobic exercise in the morning or in the afternoon. If you're engaging in exercise in the evening or at night, the problem is you get back home and you know that heart rate it's going to stay elevated for for maybe further longer than you would have thought but even more importantly perhaps is after exercising you um, you're dehydrated and so you either are going to not hydrate and you're not going to fall asleep because you're just going to be thinking I'm thirsty or you're probably going to overhydrate and then you're going to find yourself waking up in the middle of the night because you consumed too many liquids right before mm. bed. So mm. got to manage the timing well of when you're, you're getting exercise. For, for me, I, I like to exercise at the end of the day, so sort of late afternoon, 5 o'clock-ish. And, and that's about as, as late as, as you should push it. If you're doing it 7, 8, you know, later than that, that's, uh, that's going to be potentially problematic. But you know, if you like to exercise in the morning, that's, that's a really good time. I just mm, <laughs> I yeah. can't get to it in the morning. Um, the last tip is really probably my favorite because it's, it's so simple. But as we started out this conversation, most Americans don't think this way. 
The tip is to prioritize sleep. Mm. Only 10% of Americans are prioritizing sleep. If you want to sleep better, prioritize sleep. Manage your time better during the day so that you will allow for more sleep at night. Manage your time better during the day so that you can compartmentalize, all right, after dinner is not work time anymore. After dinner is a time when I can relax and I can begin my whole bedtime routine. This goes back to the, the students during final exams week, how we were able to move uh, you know, 90% of students to being seven-hour sleepers or better during final exams week. It was all because we got them to prioritize it got them to prioritize consistent bedtimes with fewer distractions. And so if there's any take-home message today, if there's only a single take-home message, it's that I should be thinking about my sleep schedule more. I should be thinking about how I can allow for more time to um, relax and get into bed and, and really try to prioritize getting healthy sleep because I know it's going to help my cognitive health. I know it's going to help my physical health and it's most certainly also going to help our mental health, our mental well-being. Yeah. Gosh, that is so good. And you actually, I mean, I love all of these tips, but you hit right on my last question, which is, which is what your heartbeat is behind this research and your hope, it, um, what your hope is for this research. But I hear that very clearly in, in your response about prioritizing and um, sleep and, and its impact on so many areas of our lives. That is awesome. Well, if you'd like to connect with Dr. Michael Scullin, uh, we will have a link to his email and his sleep neuroscience and cognition lab at Baylor in the show notes. If you'd like to connect with Robert Bohr, you can find him at robert-bohr.com or on social media at Robert Bohr. Or you can find me at hollyoxhandler.com um, and on Twitter at hollyoxhandler. Um, Dr. Scullin, thank you again so much for joining us today um, and just teaching us um, about the importance of sleep. Is, yeah. there, is there anything else that you'd like to add uh, before we wrap up today? No, thank you guys so much for having me on. Um, <laughs> what, I, what I would uh, encourage your listeners to do is uh, think of what their current bedtime is and see if tonight they can push it back by 15 minutes. That would be a really nice way of showing I'm going to try to prioritize, prioritize my sleep. And hey, it's only 15 minutes. It seems like that would be something manageable. And if that goes well, hey, why not try to do 15 minutes earlier? Why not try to do something else on that mm. tip list? So good. I love that. That's yeah. so, so good. Well, thank you so much for joining us yeah. today. And I hope you have a great afternoon. You as well. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for listening to the CXMH podcast. Want to score some major brownie points? Leave us five stars and an honest review on iTunes. Follow us on social media at CXMH podcast and email us with questions, comments, and interview requests at CXMH podcast at gmail.com.